Hey, I'm Brian Hyatt, and this is Rolling Stone Music Now. There's an absolutely fantastic new music documentary out now called The Sparks Brothers, and it is, of course, about the band Sparks, and it's directed by the great Edgar Wright, known for everything from Baby Driver to Shaun of the Dead. And the thing about Sparks is that they are very difficult to describe, a band that has transcended eras and genres like perhaps no other. But to help us understand, we have with us for today's episode Ron and Russell Mayo from Sparks and Edgar Wright. We're going to talk about their whole career and about that documentary, which is a extremely unique and, again, excellent rock documentary. So let's hear all three of these guys introduce themselves, and we'll get right to the conversation. This is Ron Mayo from Sparks. And I'm Russell Mayo from Sparks. And I'm Edgar Wright, not from Sparks. And thanks again to all three of you for being here. This is an exceptional opportunity. I hope everyone listening realizes how special this is. But I guess I would start by asking something of Edgar. The biggest thing I took away from this documentary, which I just loved, was a lesson that go- that's larger really than music. It may even be larger than art, but I was thinking for anyone with a creative career or anyone who just wants to keep going, the message seems to be allow the slate to go blank, have the courage to start over, and you can move forward and go far beyond what anyone could imagine. And I I was curious if you kind of took that message yourself as, as a creative person, both from making the documentary and just from what these guys have achieved over the years. I guess um, not something that I necessarily learned from the documentary, but more something that I was very impressed by before I'd even met Ron and Russell was if there was a seed of the inspiration for the documentary, it's because I'd been following Sparks' career for many, many years. And then particularly in the last 20 years, I was sort of confounded at how they seemed to be getting better and more ambitious and sort of more resilient and... And in a way, that was the sort of part of the inspiration for doing the documentary is I just felt that it was, um, I think, just a an inspiration, like you said, for any other artist of a way to sort of proceed. And there's, I guess there's a thing where, like, there's no, there's no artistic failure in trying. Do you know what I mean? It's like sort of in art, I guess there's no wrong answer. <laughs> and I think that's something that I thought was amazing about Sparks' work. And also, I think for Ron and Russell, watching the documentary is pretty much throughout the entire film, even with albums that at the time seemed to make sort of zero dent in the zeitgeist in a big way, always have their passionate defenders. Like, I know Ron and Russell found it very amazing to see Flea talking at length on 1977's Introducing Sparks, you know, not one of the biggest Sparks albums. And I think that's the thing is that, you know, you can get kind of bogged down in expectation. This is the same with films. You could get bogged down in expectations and let that kind of like run your life or you could just make what you want to make. It's funny. I was I was talking and this is a similar vein. I actually weirdly had dinner last night with Bill Pope, who was the cinematographer on Scott Pilgrim. And we were talking about uh, the response to that film. And I said, I said, I'm sure the money men at the studio wouldn't want to hear this. But I'd take its current 
cult status over it being a hit 10 years ago. <laughs> now, that might be controversial to say, but like, I like the warmth and the growing affection for the movie more than the idea of it being a hit 10 years ago and then people getting tired of it. <laughs> now, for Ron Russell, is that something, that feeling something you can relate to? Oh, absolutely. Obviously, everybody wants to have, you know, you'd, you'd rather be liked by more people than fewer people. But I mean, it's but it, sort of part of the thesis, I think, in Edgar's documentary is that we've always wanted to do things under our own terms. And so if there's an audience for that, then great, all the better. But if there isn't, the failure maybe isn't necessarily our fault. You know, we we did what we felt was creatively the right thing to do in any one period and that that that's the only way we know how to work we and and if we tried to kind of mold what we're doing to try to reach more people we would fail miserably at that anyway and then you have nothing you you don't have your own credibility intact and you, you've lost the essence of what you're all about and so i think that 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 whole point, that whole argument is really, is really true, you know, and it just, you know, if more people want to hear what you're doing and it's on your own terms, then so much the better, but just to know in, in your own mind that what you're doing is right for you and creatively right, then at that point, it's out of your hands. You know, we give it off to a record label and we can't do anything more about it, you know, and it either gets accepted or not. And there's different circumstances and different periods of why things maybe are treated better, you know, and all that. But at least the essence of it is is something you can stand behind. And, and then at that point, it's up to the gods. Ron, how much of the constant evolution and transformations and longevity was sort of in your mind at the beginning and how much was it just sort of the way it all worked out? I mean, I'd like to say it was a part of a plan, but it wasn't. I mean, when we, when we had our first album out, it was originally called Half Nelson. And then the band was name was changed for uh, what was thought to be commercial reasons. But, you know, we, when we had done demos and, you know, we, we were passionate about what we were doing, but just to have the, and obviously wanted something long term every you know every starting musician does but the fact that we were signed to a a label with that album that really was enough for us i mean that that was all that we needed and so the fact that we're here now and there's a documentary encapsulating five decades of stuff is kind of surreal to us and uh very strange because there there's no possible way that we would have imagined this from from the beginning or or had any plan for it i mean when you when you're involved in a lot of those decisions that you know in hindsight seem i don't know heroic or whatever a lot of times it's just kind of self-preservation and you know we we don't have an option i mean we really are are always constantly just doing things and there you know there there never was really a thought of ever stopping but we never thought that that kind of energy that we put into things was anything heroic we just thought that's that's what you do one of you said that it 
it was always your dream to be a British band uh, before when we get to the part when you moved to England. Now, of course, that's not possible, except you somehow made it possible. You, you're Americans. And my first reaction to you saying this is that, well, you can't be a British band. You were, but And yet you essentially became one. <laughs> Can you unpack that a little bit? It's just wild. Yeah, well, it was our dream. You know, we were huge Anglophiles. We loved British bands, despite the fact that we live in L.A., and um, it was kind of counter to the whole Laurel Canyon kind of scene um, that where our interests lied. And, and so to get this offer to move to England via Island Records and to reform the band at that time with British musicians and to be on this label Island, which was really an iconic label that represented you know, a certain type of quality and diversity in their musical approach, you know, for us, that was like, wow, this is, you know, it was a dream come true. And we moved to England and had British bandmates and we had a British manager. And so we were, you know, it was essentially a British band uh, apart from the fact that we're two Californians. And so it couldn't have been any better. It made the decision that we had about moving to to England and breaking up the American band of guys who are our friends at that time. It made it difficult, like it, it's discussed in the documentary, but it was this thing of, well, what do we do? We're faced with this, this uh, offer to kind of fulfill our, our dream. And uh, so all that stuff in the documentary about the, the, with the garage sale and getting rid of everything is kind of, you know, it's, it was really, the case. I mean, we were just young and naive, and we we didn't realize um, or even think of the consequences of what if it hadn't have worked in the UK. What would we have returned to? We sold all of our possessions, had nothing, and fortunately, things went well in the UK. Ron, I feel like the one of the the few direct influences that I can really pinpoint is Pete Townsend and the Who. And I know it inspired some piano bench uh, smashing. But beyond that, maybe you could explain where you saw the, the connections and what you, you drew from. Well, one thing that we really identified with, with the Who um, was, first of all, just that having a strong visual element in a live sense wasn't kind of anathema to doing amazing music. And, and from the culture that we were from in Los Angeles, it was seen that your musical integrity disappeared once you put on anything other than just a, you know, a, a work shirt. And so we really identified with the who we, and also just the element of individual characters within a band that were really strong. You know, the four people in the who, they were like characters in a, in a film in a certain sense. And that idea was, was something that really, uh, appealed to us and, and seemed like it wasn't there for, for American bands. And then on the writing end, I think, you know, probably most importantly, the early songs by The Who, where they were kind of vignettes that were, you know, about getting tattoos or, or having a picture of, of Lily on the wall, or they weren't like these monumental themes, but they took on some kind of larger character and there and there was charm to them and you know i just identified so strongly with that kind of way of writing and i think that you know it, it really was a a heavy heavy influence on you know what i've done through all the time of of writing that kind of thing where 
were like a, a vignette can become something larger than just the actual issue that's being addressed. And especially if you do it in a musical way that's maybe slightly overblown to the, to the weight of the subject matter. Edgar, I'm sure you enjoyed the fact of these guys' visual presence. You seem to love, as the camera always has, to uh, focus on uh, Ron's stage persona. As someone who works in the trade of, of screen imagery, what, what do you make of them as a, a visual entity going all the way back? Well, I think it's it's just as really impressive that like Ron Russell's like cinematic aspirations that existed before the group in terms of Russell, you know, studied film at UCLA. I think that comes across in like the the presence on stage. It particularly comes across in the album covers, which are like these little stills from motion pictures that don't exist. And so that is like really I don't know, I find that kind of like so you know, just so, so like endlessly impressive, and 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 in a way, I wanted to kind of like bring that across into the documentary, in the sense of how I shot Ron and Russell. Like for example, the interviews throughout the entire documentary are shot like the Richard Avedon Big Beat cover, and then also just the idea. I knew kind of what Ron and Russell's sense of humor was from not just the music, but from the music videos and from the album covers, and so. The idea of like having the visual puns or like just being both totally affectionate and passionate about the form, but also being able to sort of commentate it on it at the same time. I think a lot of like Spark songs are like that. And I think Ron makes a great analogy in the documentary about when he talks about Jean-Luc Godard being a favorite director because he makes movies that also seem to be commenting on the movies. And a lot of Spark songs can sort of seem to be commenting on the form, but not in a way that's cynical, with like total passion for the kind of the for the art of songwriting. And then in a similar way, I thought it'd be fun because it's a Sparks documentary to make a very passionate music documentary and slightly make fun of the music video uh, music documentary format at the same time. Absolutely. And Russell what do you remember about the sort of development of the Ron stage thing and the persona, the early days and, and your, your kind of reaction to it and just how it all kind of came to be? The Ron stage thing. Uh, <laughs> um, I'm, you know, I, it's like, you know, we, we never really analyze it amongst okay, our, I'll, our I'll, I'll, I'll let him continue, but I just want, the one thing is that I, you know, we were trying to be in a British band and everybody else in the band was able to convey an English flair in their appearance, but I, I wasn't. And so I kind of had to resort to something else. And so it was out of desperation to try to remain a member of the band. Really. So anyway, go ahead, Russell. Yeah, he, he couldn't uh, fling his keyboard around. Like he couldn't do windmills with his keyboard like Townsend could. So he had to come up with an, another approach. And, you know, he got his, what in the documentary, you can even see it initially, Ron had this Afro thing going on. And then when we moved to England, one day he went into some haircutting place and got his hair all chopped <laughs> off and slicked back. And, and I didn't mind it, but our manager at the time, he said, oh my God, what, what did you do? Because he had his two brothers with, big full curly hair 
looking similar in a certain way. And now Ron's gone and blown it. And, and now there's one guy that looks this way and another guy that looks completely different. And he was really, really um, concerned at that time <laughs> that we blew it. But Ron, obviously he made the, uh, the right decision and, you know, cause it, it did, it caused a, uh, you know, and I mean, obviously there's the mustache issue as well thrown in, but all of the elements and just his persona on, especially on TV, because at that time, TV in the UK and being on shows like Top of the Pops, it was the entire nation was focused virtually on this one TV show that on a Thursday night. And, and, um, and so to get the entire nation watching who was on that show. And then for Ron's kind of character to be such as it was that, you know, it really caused a stir. And, you know, we, in London, even to this day, there's, we get a taxi ride there and we'll get some old taxi driver and he doesn't, hasn't been following the band at all, but he goes, Oh, you know, it's the, uh, it's the guy, Hey, aren't you the guy on top of the pot? You know, in, in my really great English accent. <laughs> it was pretty good. Was that, that was taxi dry, a taxi driver accent, you know, it's special. Yeah. You never guess who I had the back of my cab. The, ge- <laughs> the, ge- the geezer from Sparks. <laughs> there you go. God, how do you, how do you do it better than me? Those English accents. And, man, I, I, Brian, if you don't mind, I have a question for Ron, which I've actually never asked. I'm sort of, I, I understand, the, I know the genesis of the mustache and also, I also thought it was great that if anybody ever asked the question, and this is in the documentary, is like, why have a Hitler mustache? Is like you say, well, it's a Charlie Chaplin mustache. That's a great get out. And it's a, to have that duality between Chaplin and Hitler is brilliant. But I've never asked this question. What was the inspiration in Sparks Mark II uh, in 1974 to sort of dress like an office worker? Because that sort of is what completes the look because nobody else is on top of the pops looking like they've just come from the office. Well, I, I think that it, it kind of fell in line with the satin suits not suiting me so <laughs> so well. And so so I decided, you know, aside from just the facial appearance, that, that it kind of needed a total dulling down of, of my whole persona. And, you know, the the strange thing is that 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 look kind of got more attention than than the, the people that were really trying hard to be all sequined and satiny and and snakeskin boot. And I was there, you know, just in in businessmen's clothes and shoes. But, you know, we, we were really fortunate because we were on TV and it was before we had done a lot of touring. So the people's idea of the band was formed from close-ups and not not from you know being thousand feet away from a stage and that that really kind of set kind of the whole tone of the band i bet there's some members of the suite who sometimes seem like they were reluctantly in lots of makeup looking at you in the bbc bar thinking like that guy doesn't have to do anything I, uh, but for a, a day of decision, I could have been looking like a member of Suite. <laughs> Russell, maybe you could talk about your vocal style, uh, which ties into the vocal melodies, but just all of the things that aren't typical for rock and roll, all, all of the theatricality and, and operatic nature of, of some of what you did and what you do. Where did that come from? I mean, so much of it's just based on 
the songs that that Ron writes and like a song like This Town maybe is you know a good example you know he wrote it on a piano and he wrote the melody the melody played that actual melody and so I had to sing that and whatever key Ron had written it and we didn't even you know we just we don't you like have big board meetings or anything. He wrote it in that key. So you got to sing it in that key. And we didn't know until probably, you know, 40 years later that there's a thing called transposing where you can <laughs> change the key of a song. And so it just so happened that that melody was in a high range, you know, and, and it was not a question of, well, can you sing it? You know, you, you have to sing it because that's how I wrote it. And it wasn't, I, you know, it wasn't a dispute. I, I liked, I just sang it you know, and it's high singing. And a lot of the songs have that high singing and kind of, I think so, so a lot of the style of the singing with the falsetto stuff and all was just kind of shaped by the type of songs that Ron was writing. And then it, in hindsight, it becomes kind of your, you know, the style that, that you do. A lot of singers, you know, why I'm comfortable working with Russell more than comfortable is just a lot of singers kind of use the the basic song as kind of the uh, jumping off point to show their amazing technical prowess. But there's kind of a greater prowess to being able to really convey the essence of a song purely, I think. And and so the songs that we we have are are really strict in their in their melodic form, and and it's important that they not be kind of. Uh, I don't know, I, I hate to use the term jazzed up, but just kind of fooled around with and, and kind of a, dem- a place for a demonstration of, of vocal athletics that, that Russell is kind of beyond all of those needs to, to do what, what they do on, you know, America's Got Talent or something where everyone is showing how emotional they can be. But, but there's a greater talent to be able to sing something really purely and, and, and well, but also convey like his own personality in in the song. You know that that's kind of pretty astounding. With because the songs are generally really hard to sing. It's like when Edgar writes a script; he doesn't want his words altered by his act. He wants them to. You say it. I'm putting words into his mouth, but maybe this isn't. The case. <laughs> And it's true. I don't do a lot of improv. It's like you write a script so people can say the words like you meant, like they were meant to be. I was going to say about the transposing. You didn't figure out until forty years later that you could transpose it to a lower key. Taylor Swift is currently re-recording her entire back catalogue. You could do the same, and there could be another twenty-five albums without having to write anything. It's just like do like sparks in lower key is like the another another run. But you know it, it, it the, it's actually sounds different when it's not just the same equivalent um, when you lower stuff. And that something that, you know, sort of proud of is that when we play live, the songs are still in the original key because, you know, when you get older, your the vocal range tends to shrink. It's just a uh, physiological thing and you have to really work at it to fight against that happening. But a lot of times uh, you'll hear artists and they, you don't kind of know why the song, why does it sound a little bit different than, than the original? And sometimes you just lowering it by a couple of semitones and 
it loses its thing, you know, and so so it's not just the same uh, transposing something up or down. I just want to say, just give credit to Russell, like sort of, I mean, the first time I ever saw you guys live, which wasn't until 2015, one of my main takeaways from seeing it was like, man, Russell can really sing like he did decades ago. It's astonishing. And actually, I was just putting the soundtrack album together. And there is a like uh, a little bit where I just put two live tracks together, one from 1975 and one from 2017. And it's like the same voice. And that's amazing. And that's a credit to how hard you work, Russell. Oh, thank you. Very kind. Wow. Uh, wow. <laughs> I'm panicked. We have a tour next year and uh, <laughs> <laughs> got to keep it up. That's why the, the tour got delayed by a, by a year. So you, you kind of go, oh my God, can I still sing in a year from now? Maybe you could talk about just Queen do seem to be some kind of musical third cousin occasionally. There's occasional echoes. You can see online people debate whether they took some influence from you or if it's just a coincidence or obviously you saw something because you, you knew that Brian May could work with you. How, how do you all see that, if at all? <laughs> yeah, I mean, I don't know. There's certain sensibilities, I guess, in between Queen and, and Sparks. Even You know, so I... You know, I, I don't know, we, with Brian May specifically, I mean, we, we liked him as a guitar player. And so, and we knew the style that he also was in with his band. And so just at that time, we, we were looking for a guitar player. So we thought, why not, uh, <laughs> why not go after somebody that you think is, you, you, you think is good as a guitar player and, and uh, had the image down too. So I, I think it's hard for us to talk about, you know, any comparisons between Sparks and Queen because, you know, it's just people can make their own uh, assertion assumptions about who was there, you know, what the connection between the bands. But it's it's really hard for us to to do that. I would rather have Jack Antonoff do it for us in the documentary. <laughs> <laughs> Check the dates, guys. Yeah. <laughs> okay, Sparks' first album, 1971. Queen's first album, 1973. Check the dates. Okay, there. That's why I didn't want, I didn't want to say it myself. I, did, well, I will say one thing. On the flip side, like, because I, I know Brian May, and when I, like, mentioned to Brian May that I was doing this documentary, the first thing that he said is he said, I love Sparks. He goes, those guys are real musicians. That was, like, the first thing he said, which I thought was very sweet. And then he said, he goes, he goes, he goes, a friend of mine just saw them live. This was like a couple of years ago. And he said, and he said, they're just amazing. So that was the second thing he said. So there's no love lost. Okay. We love Queen. <laughs> <laughs> After hearing that story. <laughs> it's all love. Edgar, uh, to take it back to the movie itself for a second, the film uses many of the tropes of a standard music documentary, but never really feels like a, a standard music documentary. Were there things that you wanted to avoid or, or just techniques you use to keep it feeling, it uses talking heads, but it never feels like that plotting rhythm of, of the very bog standard music documentary. Yeah. I mean, I was sort of conscious of that. I want, like I said, I wanted it to be slightly self-reflexive in the sense that it was sort of poking fun at the format at the same time. So, you know, with like little jokes, like the, the Chirons under people's names are sometimes kind of uh, pretty like silly and, and and that just seemed to be in the spirit of the band of kind of like Ron and Russell have such a great sense of humor and a sort of like a just you know 
the whole career has a sort of arched eyebrow about it and I wanted to have the same feeling in the documentary. I mean, I love music documentaries and sometimes you want to avoid cliches and stuff. Like, I wanted to do all of the interviews in the same way because it does make it seem like, wow, did they get all of these people in the same studio on the same day? It's sort of, And it's like to get away from some of those cliches of music documentaries of like person sitting in studio in front of the mixing desk or person sitting in front of their gold records, all of those things that are like sort of tired. So I wanted to sort of get away from that. Um, I think if it feels more relaxed, I, it might just be that I was doing the interviews and that I was doing the interviews as a fan like, I'm not doing it in some kind of, like, um, the great interrogator, like I'm, you know, like uh, Nick Broomfield or, you know, trying to get at something or trying sort of, like... I feel that like all of the interviews were very relaxed, mainly because I would like, never really done that before. So I was kind of just doing it in a way that I'm asking questions, but then it's just having a chat. And some of the best stuff in that people talk about is just us riffing on things like me and neil gaiman sort of breaking down our our kind of hypothesis of what exactly is happening on the propaganda cover is not something i plan to ask him it just comes up organically so i think because of that it maybe feels in a very nice way a little more informal and that was i guess it was just unplanned it's like you have these great people you want to ask them questions about Sparks and then anything after that is just a conversation between two fans, you know? We were such and are such fans of Edgar's work. And so when Edgar had mentioned about doing a document about Sparks, we were really excited. And, you know, we're hoping that, you know, we love films that, you know, like Scott Pilgrim's amazing and going, well, God, I can, is there a way to, you know, we didn't say this to Edgar at all, but, you know, we hope that it would have, the spirit, the energy of Scott Pilgrim, but applied to a documentary. But then we're in the back of our heads going, well, God, how do you do that? Maybe that's not even possible, but we think Edgar achieved kind of as close as you can that it's, it's not Scott Pilgrim by any means, but the kind of kinetic sort of energy that that film has somehow Edgar would manage to, achieve that in a documentary about sparks to have that kind of energy and urgency to it. And I think, you know, it's a real feat of, of Edgar's uh, talents as a director to be able to, to do that because we, you know, we were kind of half joking sometimes at least amongst ourselves between Ron and I just going, I hope he doesn't save his good stuff or, you know, don't save the good stuff that you do for, for your, your real films. And then this will be a dry, you know, kind of more standard form documentary. And, and, but Edgar did the really made it like kind of anything but a standard documentary. And I think that's what is really appealing to Ron and, and myself. And I think there's so many people that have seen it so far have kind of commented that it kind of, has made, you know, almost kind of a, a different form for doing a music documentary. It does somehow mysteriously have that, almost a, that graphic novel energy. It's almost like a graphic novel about Sparks, which is in, in, interesting. But obviously you started working with Giorgio Moroder as a film makes clear, and you've talked about before by, by lying to a journalist, which is always a good way to, to start. But maybe you could explain, obviously you had it in your head to make up the lie. <laughs> so, so what, what was the thinking? Because that was, you know, I, I know you're sick of being told you're ahead of your time, but that was very advanced thinking. And it led to 
just such marvelous music. So what was the what was the thinking there? Well, we really felt we were at a point where we had explored everything that we could musically by working with a band. And, you know, we, uh, I mean, we probably mentioned in the documentary, but we heard Donna Summer's I Feel Love. And just that, that combination of that kind of cold Germanic electronic music with a singer that was the opposite of that. It just seemed such, such a special kind of, of musical way of doing just a way of doing pop music. And so, so we, you know, in our own minds, I mean, we don't usually say, well, what if we do such and such, but it kind of struck us that if, if we could put ourselves in that position, you know, something amazing might happen. And so it turned out that Giorgio was also looking to work with a band at the time. And we were kind of ideal because we're loosely a band, but it's really just basically the the two of us. And so I think it it was more uh, a natural fit for working with Giorgio, where it wasn't having to set up the bass and the drums and all of that, that it really was the three of us when we went into the studio to record the number one in, in Heaven album. And, you know, the atmosphere of doing that album was so amazing because even though, you know, we had I Feel Love echoing in our head, nobody really knew what that album was going to turn out to be. And that was a really exciting thing. And when the album was done, there were a lot of people, you know, some Sparks fans, but then some that were just generally rock fans that really thought that this was a mistake. And we knew what we had done. And Giorgio knew what he had done. And so it eventually became established as something special. I wanted to ask about the title track, the number one song in heaven. Maybe we could really dig in for a second on the actual creation of it. Uh, You know, I think there's so many great things about it, but one of them is when the, the beat change... so fantastic so if you remember the sort of granular details of of creating that that could be amazing well i mean a lot of it like ron had mentioned previously we were kind of all just winging it at the time and things like that were just fun things like giorgio i think was just kind of also experimenting and just trying stuff and i think he found a receptive audience with us that we were equally open to just you know there were no kind of no rules that for that kind of an album. So there was nothing, nothing was the wrong move. So if right in the middle of the song, we wanted to have a tempo change, that was fine. But some of those things were also <laughs> contradictory to Giorgio's way of working in the past, because he's really used to a, you know, a constant beat and not having things like tempo changes. So when something like that came up in the recording process with the three of us, it was kind of even fresh for Giorgio to, to not be concerned that, oops, right then we kind of going to lose anybody that's wanting to tap along or dance to that song because it's going to, they're going to have to all of a sudden put it into overdrive because the tempo's changing. So, I mean, things like that, I think were just things that came up with experimentation. We, we all worked in a small studio in near downtown LA, this little synthesizer studio and kind of completely shut off from everything. And, and, um, Things like that just evolved, you know, and I mean, Giorgio, to his credit, he was the one who was really super knowledgeable about synthesizers at the time. And we worked the studio in downtown that had uh, just 
banks and banks of Moog synthesizers. And he and he had some people working for him too, that were handy at patching in all the different uh, patch cords that you needed to work with modular Moog synthesizers at that time, which were massive things. And um, so I think the combination of that song too, where the electronics are kind of coming from Giorgio's side, but then it's sort of Ron's lyrics too, that were sort of counter to Giorgio's normal way of writing lyrics where, you know, it's, Ooh, love to love you, baby, you know, and, and, uh, Ooh, I feel good. I feel good. I feel good. I feel good. And those were incredible for Donna summer songs, but now he's working with lyrics about, you know, this being, again, like Edgar had even mentioned before about almost commentating a little bit on commenting on, on the song. This, this is the number one song in heaven, you know, it's kind of self-referential in, in a way. And so I think that was kind of fresh for Giorgio. And sometimes we were hoping that he would kind of accept having lyrics that weren't kind of ones that he was used to having in his songs. For all of Donna Summer songs, he had a co-writer named Pete Bellotti that did a, a lot of the lyrics. So for, for the first time, I think, in most of Georgia's career, now there was another lyricist, too, in Ron. And to give him his due, I mean, he, he was responsible for the melody of that particular song. You know, there were other things that we we wrote, you know, just the, the melodic part. But, but just for that song, you know, he, he has these moments where he says, boys, I need to compose. And then he goes away for 15 minutes and sits at a piano and, and comes up with something uh, uh, amazing. So, you know, it was, it was an incredible experience. I mean, just there's another song on the album called Beat the Clock. He said, boys, do you, do you have any rock songs? So I had a song that I thought was kind of like a Velvet Underground kind of song. And then that was kind of turned into beat the clock, you know, just which kind of sounds 180 degrees away from from a Velvet Underground song. But the chord structure is kind of that sort of simple kind of thing. When things hit a particularly low ebb commercially, uh, and especially in the late 80s, in that whole period, and in the film represented by a touching moment of of someone crying over your temporary uh, low point, how did you two feel about that? Or are you sort of impervious because you're you're always just carrying on no matter what? Well, I mean, during that that period, despite, you know, it was really a, a touching moment with Christy Hayden, you know, having her emotional moment, thinking about, you know, looking after, in a way, looking after our, being concerned about our well-being. Uh, but, you know, the flip side of it is we, we were at that time also working on the, um, this movie musical project with Tim Burton that didn't get off the ground, unfortunately, but we spent probably too, way too much time working on several years. So, so, you know, there was creative stuff going on despite whatever, any, any other considerations there was creative stuff. So despite that, you know, we kind of, you know, again, like was something that Edgar managed to convey so well in the documentary that, through thick and thin, the only thing we can control is just what we do creatively. And so we just steamed ahead. And obviously, it's more fun to be working when things are going well. But but then I think something that also comes across in the documentary is that 
maybe there's those times when things are really difficult. That's when you kind of say, we got to find a way to crawl out of this hole. And that's when you do your best work. So I think there's both sides to the, the story. When you have a band who has sounded like so many different things, you know, Edgar, you had that thing of people asking you, I think, uh, you know, what Sparks album should you start with? And it was very, very difficult to answer. When people ask me that, I have to come back with five. Because there's not one Sparks album that kind of tells the whole story. But in five, you can sort of get the shape of it. <laughs> I once asked uh, David Frick, uh, the legendary Rolling Stone writer, what Sparks album I should recommend to someone who was asking me what to recommend because I was also overwhelmed. And he said, tell them to get all of them. <laughs> I said, now that's a writer. <laughs> a wise man. I said, that's not very helpful, but I, I will pass that on. But for the two of you, is there a core moment? Is there a moment that through all of it, and maybe it's even recent, or maybe it doesn't exist at all, where it's like, this is the essence of Sparks? Was there ever a, a moment like that? <laughs> maybe it's an insane question. I don't know. Yeah, I mean, I, I don't think that there is. I think um, maybe Dave Frick's comment is kind of more appropriate, where it's like, you got to, you know, they're they're all valid they're they're all you know and that there isn't one some some albums have like some maybe sentimental value more than others for what was surrounding it at the time you know like you know in the uk with cohen my house the was the first album and it was this big breakthrough for us but then there were similar times like in germany with with uh the gratuitous sax album where we had a really big hit 20 years after Kimono My House and we're having kids that are, you know, 13 year old girls and 14 year old kids screaming at the band 20 years after the time that they screamed in London. And then, and then the exact same thing in, in the eighties in Los Angeles where there's these different eras. So there's different periods that have a special meaning and the albums, you know, also have a special meaning, but to pick one or another that, encapsulates everything i think it's you know it is really difficult you need at least the five that edgar said but i'd lean even further to the to david frick's uh, get them all would you agree that it does say a lot about sparks that when you began your collaboration with franz ferdinand you sent them a track called the uh, collaborations don't work yeah, I mean, it, I think it was a, a good touch of, you know, lyrically uh, for that Ron did. And and like Alex uh, Capranos says from Franz Ferdinand in the document, I think he says it in the documentary, this was coming from Sparks, this, you know, kind of set the tone of like, okay, this is going to be a challenge that working together. And and then they came and they uh, he sent back his section of that song, which was kind of his rebuttal, you know, uh, to our challenge and him saying, I, I ain't no collaborator. And again, it's one of those things that Edgar mentioned about the, for a split second, stepping outside of the thing and commenting that collaborations don't work. It's talking about, you know, a, a situation that, that the song is actually, you know, doing the song is also is collaborating, but also commenting on that. And so it just kind of has this outside character looking in on it and com commenting on on the situation. And so I think it, you know, it obviously took a band like Franz Ferdinand and Alex Capranis's sensibility to kind of grasp that sort of concept and not be uh, not 
think it was being something offensive or something. And I think it was on the contrary, that it kind of just, it was the spirit of both bands was so in line that that, that was well, well received. Collaborations don't work. They don't work, they don't work. Collaborations don't work. From this experience that you might take forward into your, your non-documentary filmmaking, anything that, that you, you learned or are taking forward? Wow, that's a big question to end on. Um, <laughs> I wish I had an amazing pithy answer for it. I guess the sort of the lesson of the movie is to always just try and do what you want to do, not what you think you ought to do. I saw somebody talk about the movie as like sort of 50 years of left turns. And I think that's kind of a good way of describing it. Like I said, there's no wrong answer. So I think that's the thing that is really inspirational for me watching it is that there's no... There's no kind of like, um, you don't have to follow the conventional charts in art and in music and in film. And that is today's episode. Thanks so much to the guys from Sparks and to Edgar Wright for joining me. Rolling Stone Music Now will be back next week here on Sirius XM Volume, Channel 106. And in the meantime, we are a podcast. Download us as a podcast subscribe to us as a podcast wherever you get your podcasts make sure to leave us a nice review on itunes if you can but as always thanks for listening and we will see you next week Welcome to Talkville, the ultimate Smallville rewatch podcast. Guest star Sarah Carter as Alicia Baker. Although I didn't really work with her a lot. But Tom did, and they had some real big smoochy scenes. Yeah. Can we talk about that? Could there be any more sex? What was a three-page makeout scene that just kept going? Good Lord. We get it. They have chemistry. Jump in now or catch up on any of the past seasons of Talkville on YouTube or wherever you listen.